All right, our scripture this morning is the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Amen. Well, man, Palm Sunday, Baptism Sunday, and next Sunday, Easter. Oh, it doesn't get better than that. And we have more baptisms on the horizon. Uh, Hey, let's be praying for Easter next week. I mean, one, if you guys are willing to help us put it together and, and, uh, you know, commit to the all-hands-on-deck day mindset, uh, we could use your help. But let's please remember to be praying, too. Uh, God just continues to use Easter here at Current and and a lot of gospel-believing churches on this holiday in our culture to help people see and hear about Jesus. So um, with that in mind, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into our teaching today. Father, uh, what what a joyous day to celebrate three baptisms, three adults who've made decisions to follow you after just a couple weeks ago celebrating three others and uh, we just give you the praise. We pray that today would, would, would bring a smile to your face, first and foremost. But it would also act as a, as a wonderful spiritual marker in the lives of these individuals and their family and friends. And, and as well for, for us as a, as a church family. Now, this is what it's all about. Coming to know Jesus, growing in Him. And Father, with the opportunity of making him known all the more next Sunday in Easter with the invitations that have been made, with postcards that have been mailed, Lord, would you just go before us and, and all the churches that, that proclaim the gospel in this area and around the globe, would you do a, a mighty work next Sunday? Would many people come to know you, put their faith in you? Would many people come back to you in their faith? And then, Father, as we turn now to your word, would you please open it up to us with, through the power of your spirit to understand what it is you have in front of us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, life in community is vitally important. I happen to have had a number of conversations recently with friends who are not Christian, uh, who, have all, who all expressed more or less the same thing. In, in the words of one of my buddies, uh, he was saying... Man, I'm so jealous of Christians who get to experience the community they do in a healthy church. And I remember just hearing that and just thinking, tell me more. And he was just saying, there's, there's just a depth to relationships that, church, that Christians get to experience in church, just a, a meaningfulness uh, and, 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 and richness to relationships that Christians get to experience in church that I just haven't seen elsewhere in society. 
To which I said to him and my other friends expressing similar thoughts, come, you know, join us. You know, it reminds me of the, the comment that we hear almost every Alpha that we've run. We've run Alpha a handful of times now. And I want to say without exception, every Alpha course we've run, which is our course for exploring Christianity, those checking out the, the faith, there comes a time, usually a few weeks in, that in every one of these sessions, someone will, will say something like, oh my goodness, we've been spending only a few weeks' time with each other, but I now know people in this group way more than I know people that I sit next to and work beside like all day long throughout the week. Community is vitally important. And what we see in this text is the, the assumption that God has made you for that. It's, it's, it's the assumption that you and I, if we've put our faith in Jesus, will root ourselves into community. More specifically, a community uh, trying to live out the gospel as a church. If you, if you look at our text here, just kind of broad, broadly speaking, you see all this, uh, you see this uh, life and community just built in as an assumption. Paul addresses brothers and sisters in verse 1. And then he's speaking in the plural. He says, watch yourselves. And then verse 2, he says, carry each other's burdens. Uh, in these relationships, he tells us in verse 4, not to compare ourselves to others. And then verse 10, let us collectively do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Christianity knows nothing of go-it-alone faith. It is, it is a call when we put our faith in Jesus to root ourselves in the community. And I realize I'm speaking to the, the choir, as it were, with you here today because you've shown up. But it's just to say that the, what we're going to talk about today is, is really important because it builds on what Paul has been saying. And what he had been saying is last week, here's how you grow in the faith. If you put your faith in Jesus, here's what it means to grow in him. And now he takes it one step further to say, here's how you grow in him in community. So today we're going to actually look at marks or traits of a gospel-centered community, a church that's trying its best to live out the principles that Galatians is entirely about, living out the gospel, living out what it means to follow Jesus for what he has done for us, and how that ought to look for us as we carry that out as a church. All right, so we're going to look at traits or marks of a gospel-centered community. Real quick, and then we're going to celebrate baptisms. Uh, number one, we see that a gospel-centered community takes sin seriously. Verse one says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Uh, more literally, this uh, is actually saying, if someone is overtaken by sin, that's a more literal translation, and it's worth mentioning that because the point here is, is not somebody is out there living a licentious life, just doing whatever, and then at some point, you know, somebody just calls them out, whoop, you got caught, let me put you in your place. Uh, that's not what it's talking about. What, the, what Paul is saying when he says, is some, when somebody's overtaken by sin, do your best to restore them gently, he's saying, when somebody is trying to live out everything that I've, I've laid out here in the book of Galatians— when they're, when they're trying to take seriously the acts of the flesh to avoid those things, trying to live out the fruit of the Spirit, which we talked about last week. They're trying their best to follow God, but there comes a point where they're overtaken by sin. In other words, they're, they fall off the horse, as it were. Like, just a big event. Like some, something, it's not, in other words, every biblical scholar I was reading on this text was saying what Paul is not saying of the church is they need to become a moral police just going around and telling everybody, hey, you're sinning over there. You need to deal with this. But he's pointing out that, hey, when somebody falls off the horse, when they've, they, when they've been overtaken by sin, 
Help that person. And the first thought we need to consider here is it means we need to take sin seriously. Because if we're not taking sin seriously, well, we'll just leave, leave it be and not care about it. But Paul is saying, no, if you, if you understand the implications of the gospel, you'll, you'll take sin seriously in community. Uh, one of the phrases I, uh, out there that, that I just love, and we, we kind of adopt it here at Current, is the phrase, uh, come as you are. We want to be a church with a culture of come as you are. That's why we say every week, Current is a community following Jesus together, and you're welcome wherever you're at on your spiritual journey. We want to be a come-as-you-are culture, a come-as-you-are church, and not remain-as-you-are church. Uh, that's the thing. Those two things go together. Come together, uh, c- come as you are, but don't remain as you are. When you look at the life of Jesus, when he was hanging out with all the people in the, in the gospel accounts, he was constantly living with this come-as-you-are mindset. In fact, he even was labeled a friend of sinners. People would come who were labeled in his day as sinners, and he'd be like, yeah, I want to come. And yet, in just about every single instance, they would also not leave the same way that they came. They would not remain as they are. And the way we help each other in this, in, in a gospel-centered community, is to, is to take sin seriously. We need to understand that sin is something we, got, we have to take, take seriously. Jesus, in his great commission, his mission for every single church, uh, put it this way. He said, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's the first half of the, of the Great Commission. Every church needs to do this, go and make disciples, baptizing them. If I can put it this way, use a theological term, that's evangelism. That's sharing the good news, telling people about Jesus so that if they feel so led, they could receive him, put their faith in him. And as they do, baptize him. We're celebrating that today. That's the first half of the Great Commission. But then he goes on to say, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and I will be with you to the end of the age. So if the first half of the Great Commission for every church is evangelism, the second half, teaching them to obey, is discipleship or growing in the faith. Uh, it's what we're talking about today in, in the sense of taking sin seriously such that it, we come as we are, but we don't remain as we are. And what I love about Jesus' teaching there, his call, this great commission, is built into uh, his language is a very insightful thought. So that word that says, uh, uh, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you is the Greek word terrain. And, and the force of it, 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 can, it can very well be translated obey. It's a, it's a fair translation. But the force of it is not just black and white obey. The force of it is saying, try your absolute best. Strive to obey. Meaning, we understand that you're in need of Jesus in the first place. You're not going to get it all right. You need his help. But obey in the sense of you're trying your absolute bit. Take, take it seriously. And we're called to do this, taking sin seriously, in community. Look at verse, verses 7 and 8. It says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Uh, what we reap, we've sown. And we all know folks in our lives, or perhaps even ourselves, where when we've got ourselves into trouble, we're struggling, we're just wrestling with the realities of challenging circumstances or pain or whatever it might be. We all know times in which that's been because of our own sowing, as it were, or, or the sowing of another person, and, and they're, they're trying to 
excuse it away saying, oh, there's other circumstances, other people doing this, or maybe even blame God for the situation we've ended up, but really it was their fault or our fault. It's what we sowed that got us into that place. Paul's saying what, what we sow, we'll reap. Regardless of what we work out in our minds, we think it's maybe them, maybe, maybe even God. Uh, I have a, a friend who's a, a pastor, and he's a pastor in a downtown uh, city, urban area, and, uh, and he, he pastors a, a church that's a lot, uh, uh, mostly college age and just after congregations. It's a young uh, urban city uh, of, a, of a congregation. And what you need to know about my, my friend uh, before I tell this story, is he's about as straight of a shooter as it comes. You know, you know anybody like this in your life, it's like, you don't have to guess what he's thinking. It's like, he's just going to tell you. What's awesome about him, though, is he's also incredibly loving, caring dude. It's just, he's going to tell you, he's not going to sugarcoat his love. Does that make sense? So he was telling me a couple of months ago, he got a call in the middle of the night, and I'm talking two in the morning, from somebody in his, his church who called him up and said, Pastor, pastor, I'm in trouble. I need your help. Will you pray for me? And the way my buddy was telling the story, he's like, he's still waking up at this point. He's like, oh, hey, oh, uh, yeah, I can help. Like, what, what's going on? What, tell me. And uh, this, this young adult guy, he's like, pastor, I'm at the club. I've been, drinking, I've been drinking a lot. And there's a lot of girls around me, pastor. And God's tempting me, pastor. I need help. And my buddy, my buddy is all, he's, at this point, he's like woken up. He's like, my guy, it's not God who put you there. You put yourself there. And you don't need so much prayer, which I'll do when I hang up here. You just need to get yourself out of there, right? And, you know, he's telling the story, and I was just chuckling. I just thought it was funny. But I realize it's actually kind of insightful in, in terms of what we're talking about here today because, you know, we might chuckle at an example like that, but really it's kind of human nature for us to do just that, to find ourselves in a situation just be like, well, and just... Just do the mental gymnastics of, oh, well, the reason I'm here is that, or maybe God put me here, or whatever the case might be, when really it's, no, we've sown this. And we've all seen that in other people, when they're saying all these things, and you're over here in the back of your mind, like, yeah, but have you thought about? Uh, we need to take sin seriously. We need to understand that we need to do this in community and be there for each other when we've been overcome by, overtaken by sin. There for each other, thinking about it. Helping each other, not just to come as, as we are, but, but also not remain as we are. Okay, that thought goes hand in hand with the second, and then we'll think about it in terms of application. The second thought, so, so a gospel-centered community takes sin seriously, but it also at the same time has a humble, sober understanding of its own need for grace. Okay, gospel-centered community takes sin seriously, but also at the same time understands its own humble, sober need for grace that it itself needs. These, these points go hand in hand. You, you can't just have one without the other. And that's exactly how Paul writes it here. Again, look at verse one. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, he says. And then look at verse three. If anyone thinks you, they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. In fact, in the Greek, it's far uh, stronger here. It's, he's saying more literally, if anyone thinks they are something when they are nothing, they deceive themselves. Paul is writing here, of course, to Christians. We've talked a lot about this throughout our series here in the book of Galatians. He's writing to Christians. And so his point here is saying all Christians, when it comes to their own sin and relationship before God, in, their, in and of, them own, of them, their own selves, are nothing. 
They're nothing. They are completely and desperately in need of Christ themselves. It's not like when you put your faith in Jesus, you reach a holy status and can go around and say, all right, I've got it figured out, and here's how you need to figure it out. We are all constantly, even as we grow in Christ, mature in Him, in need of Christ. We don't, we don't run, we don't graduate from that, as we've said in this series. And Jesus Himself taught very famously about this in His Sermon on the Mount. I want to read this because I think it's just, it just goes hand in hand with what Paul's saying. Do not judge, or you too will be judged, Jesus said. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. What I find almost amusing is that there will be certain people who will read these verses, hear this teaching of Jesus, and go, oh, okay, so I really can look to remove the other person's issue. I just need to clean up my act a little bit, and then I can get back to looking at their issues and figuring them out. It's not just amusing. It's actually also a little concerning because that's not the force of what Jesus is saying. First of all, Jesus is saying, don't judge. Okay, full stop. But then his, what he's going on to say is when you look at your, the sin in your, in your brother's eyes, so to speak, when you start to do that, what you're going to need to understand, this is our Savior talking to us, what you need to understand is when you do that, you find a speck of sawdust in their eye and you think it's bigger than that. It's, it's a speck of sawdust. And in your own eye, you meanwhile have a plank. In fact, a modern day translation would be like a telephone pole sticking out of your eye. I mean, it's, it's comical is what Jesus is pointing out. And yet, yet we can so easily do this all the time. Churches are known for this. It's, this is exactly what Paul is saying in Galatians 6. He's saying in community, in a gospel-centered community, take sin seriously, yes, but oh, make sure as you do that to have a humble, sober understanding of your own need for grace. And in fact, if you don't start there, then don't go there with your brother or sister. Notice that after Paul says, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, he then goes, he, he then goes on to say, they deceive themselves. Pride is the death knell of relationships. Pride is just so destructive. We talked about this very briefly last week, but Galatians 5.26 said it this way, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. There it is again, a command, a warning against pride. I remember I was at a, a conference uh, many years ago, and I had the opportunity to listen to a pastor. I've read a number of his books, and I was thinking, oh, this is going to be interesting. I, you know, I want to hear what, what he has to say. And so I was uh, extra leaning in and just taking it in. And, and at one point in the, the talk, he said something that was certainly meant to be provocative that that stuck with me. I thought it was just an insightful thought. I've given it a thought since then. But at one point in the middle of this conference, he said to a group of pastors, he said, pride is way more destructive than pornography. And as soon as he said that, like the room just kind of got extra quiet. I'm just, pride, pride is more destructive than pornography. And I thought about that. I was just like, that's a, it's a pretty insightful 
insightful thought. We spent some time last week talking about pornography. If you're here, as we talked about sexual immorality as part of the acts of the, of the flesh. So we talked about how lust is, is a real thing and it has impacts on our own lives and, and those around us. We spent some time talking about that. It's not something I've talked about a lot, but we, we spent some time talking about the effects of pornography in our lives. Pornography is probably one of those things. If you go to church, you probably go, yeah, I need to take that seriously. I gotta, yeah, I gotta take that seriously. Pride is usually not that so thought of. We probably with pride more go, you know what? Intellectually, yeah, I see that. But no one goes, oh, and that's me. And yet pride is so, so destructive. I mean, according to that pastor, it's far more destructive than even, even something like pornography or other sins that get a lot of our attention, so to speak. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. I was just thinking about this in, in my study this morning, actually. And I was realizing that, you know, the Pharisee, so often when he encountered Jesus, rejected him. Meanwhile, the prostitute often fell prostrate before Jesus. The thing about pride is we are almost certainly by definition blind to it. Nobody hears, hey, take pride seriously. Hey, pride is very destructive and goes, and that's me. Pride dismisses itself. So we have to be especially mindful. And, and, and Bible talks a lot about pride. I mean, just in our few verses, it just comes up repeatedly. Here's the thing about pride. Pride doesn't just, pride doesn't necessarily say, I am better than you are. Pride simply says, I'm more important than you are. Pride is not just the person who's walking around, you know, pompously arrogant, saying, look at me and look at you, lowly you, you know, the characterization of what we think of when we think of pride. Pride is not just that person. Pride is the person who makes everything about themselves. Pride is the person who, when they hear things, immediately goes, well, here's how I know it to be true. Here's how I see it from my perspective, which is, which is right. In other words, pride makes the world revolve around them. Whatever comes up, it's, it's, it's about them. And I would just humbly say, if you're sitting there and you're thinking, oh, I'm so glad so-and-so is listening to this, that would be a good indication that so-and-so is probably you. And really, the, the reality, I think we all hopefully are starting to pick up on here, is we all struggle with pride. We all struggle with pride. And that's why the scriptures come up uh, talking about it over and over. It's in every single one of us. And the whole point of what Jesus says, and now Paul is just kind of recapitulating here in, in Galatians 6, is, hey, take sin seriously in gospel-centered community, but as you do so, with the, do so with the fear of God, and you do not forget that you have a desperate need for Jesus, your own self. And that'll inform how maybe you go about helping others in gospel-centered community, which they need and, and you need from, from them. A couple points of application, then we'll move on to the last point, which will be quicker. But a couple points of application, because now we've had these two thoughts. Uh, gospel-centered community uh, takes sin seriously, and it... Uh, has a humble, sober understanding for itself. A couple points of application for these two points that go together. Number one, Paul says, we need to look inward. Okay? The way he says it is verse four, each one should test their own actions. We need to look inward. The emphasis in the scriptures is always when it comes to sin and taking it seriously. First and mostly, look inward. Test your own actions. Test your own heart. Make sure you're looking at your own heart. And you, what's, what's so tragic is so much of the American church is known for being precisely what we're talking about, judgmental. I mean, if you look at the data, one of the top reasons why people are rejecting the church 
either to begin with or leaving the church in greater numbers than ever before in our society is precisely because the church is known for being judgmental. And that's absolutely tragic because Christians ought to be the last people on earth who are judgmental. Because Jesus came teaching, don't judge, and took our judgment when we didn't deserve it on our behalf. And yet, why do churches fall into this trap of judgmentalism? Well, among many things, no doubt, it's partly by taking our eyes off ourselves. It's not looking inward, it's looking outward. And even as we look outward, we're failing to look at all inward. And that's just not what the scriptures teach. We, gotta, we start with looking, looking inward. And then number two, point of application, make sure not to compare. Don't compare. Verse four, each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. Comparison is probably what drives so much of the destructive power of pride. Wouldn't you say? And boy, I don't have much time to develop this, but you know in our social media age, I mean, the opportunity for comparison is just, it's, it's all around us. The, the thing about comparison is, no matter how we stack ourselves up against whomever we're comparing ourselves to, whether we see ourselves as superior, whether we see ourselves as inferior, is it's not going to be good. Because it'll either lead us, if we feel superior, to like arrogance, haughtiness, right? That kind of thing. Or if we deem ourselves as we compare inferior, maybe, maybe resentful, bitter, envious, those sorts of things. And scriptures are clear, don't, don't compare. And then and the third point of application here is, remember the aim is restoration. The aim is to restore. Uh, the only time we look to help someone uh, who is struggling with sin is in the effort of their interest, looking to care for them, to restore them. The aim is not correction. The aim is restoration. The aim is to impart life. Because that's why Paul says, okay, when they've been overtaken by sin, restore them gently, he says. Uh, real quickly, uh, Randy Alcorn uh, says it perhaps most succinctly. He wrote a little book on this. I thought it was really helpful. And another, another way of putting what we're talking about right now is we need to, grace and truth have to go together, okay? It has to be both grace and truth as we live out these things in community. Here's what he said. Truth without grace crushes people and ceases to be truth. Grace without truth deceives people and ceases to be grace. Truth without grace degenerates into judgmental legalism. Grace without truth degenerates into deceitful tolerance, okay? Both these things need to go hand in hand as we live out a, a gospel-centered community that takes sin seriously and has a humble understanding of its own need for grace. I've shared this example uh, years ago, but there was a time in my life when I was younger, just, just out of college, when a buddy and I got into a very heated uh, rift over a girl, all right? What else at that time? Uh, you know what's fun, though, is I, so, okay, so he's accusing me of having interest for a gal that I knew I didn't have any interest for, and I can tell you how I know that, because I actually, at the same time, started pursuing Cindy, so it's like, all right, <laughs> college, post-college days, it's like, <laughs> anyway, so, okay, but so he's accusing me of this, and I'm over here like, okay, first of all, that's not, not right, but even if it were right, and I like this girl, what's that to you, you know, that's kind of the deal of this whole thing, right, okay. So I was just, the whole thing was like, man, it got super heated and we were on community together. So it's just like, it was all awkward and yeah, all that stuff. Um, to fast forward 
uh, and kind of get to the end real quick. We reconciled, and I'm very thankful for that because these situations don't always end that way. But in the in-between, it was really hard. And so he was really upset for what he thought was going on in me, and I was really upset for him accusing me of things I knew weren't true, and I, I knew I was right, and I knew he was, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I was digging in my heels just over principle and all sorts of stuff, and it was just messy, not fun, all the rest of it for weeks. And I remember... Uh, a mentor of mine took me out to breakfast one day, and this was about a couple weeks into that, maybe two weeks in, and just heard me out. I just got to go to breakfast and just listened. You know, I got to share, you know, my perspective. I had had a lot of time to think all the more about it, so I was laying out all my arguments and just sharing all that. He was just listening. And then he you know, was reflecting back, like, yeah, I could see how you see that. I could see how you come to those conclusions. All that makes sense. And I, yeah, I get it. And he, and he shared how for him, he had gone through in a similar experience and how it had worked out and all that sort of stuff. So he's just listening. And then, and then there came a point towards the end of breakfast where he just, you know, put his utensils down. He looked at me across the table. And he said, but David, you're being kind of a donkey. Although he used a three-letter word that starts with an A. And my first thought was like, but you're a leader in the church. Can you say that? But in that moment, I was like, it, 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 it cut to my heart in a, in a good way. Like I realized, I, f- I feel like the Lord used those words in, in, a, in a very clear moment for me to go, to get past my pride, to start to break it down. And even without explaining what he meant, I immediately just was flooded with everything I knew he was he was saying, and that was, I hadn't been handling it all that well. Regardless of me thinking I was right, figuring I wasn't all that loving, I wasn't all that patient, I was lashing out, I was doing all sorts of things that really, for my part, was not right. And you know, I'm so thankful for his wisdom because he didn't just do that right away. If he had, you know, a week or two before that taken me out to breakfast, I wouldn't have listened. I was just too, you know inflamed. You know what I mean? Inflammation was just running in me. He took some time. And then he also took the time to gently listen to me, establish relationship. And then here's where I, I appreciate the most is no doubt he was able to understand that because of the relationship we had, he knew, he knew me and I, he knew I knew he knew me, all that sort of stuff. And you know, I loved him, respected him. And so he was able to quote, go there with me potentially risk a little bit of, you know, not fun backlash from me, all for the sake of helping me come to life and bring life back into that relationship, let alone back into, you know, the community that was impacted indirectly by all this. Gospel-centered community takes sin seriously when there comes a point in time where somebody falls off the horse, so to speak, or is overcome by sin, it, it takes sin seriously, but only as much as it also does that with a sober, humble understanding of its own need for grace. And the goal is always restoration. It's always to impart life because we need to be there for others in this, even as others need to be there for us. Last thought. Gospel-centered community takes sin seriously. It has a humble, sober understanding of its own need for grace. And then number three, the gospel-centered community intentionally invests in others over the long haul. Look at verse eight. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those 
who belong to the family of believers. Gospel-centered community, excuse me, intentionally invests in others over the long haul. Uh, again, Paul is using the metaphor of plant life. <laughs> I love this. Scripture is constantly coming back to the metaphor of plant life. Last week, we talked about the fruit of the Spirit. Here, we're talking about sowing and harvesting. I am not a farmer, so that you guys come from yeah, that background. Uh, forgive me. But from what little I've just kind of meditated on this week is the fact that farmers don't stop sowing halfway through, right? Farmers are out there doing the hard work day in, day out, and they don't just get to a place where like, you know what? Half the field's good. We're done. Because the farmer understands that while he can't control the harvest, he can control how much he sows, right? So he understands, therefore, if he sows a lot, that'll impact the harvest. If he sows a little, that will also impact the harvest. And so he gets at it. And here's the thing I love about what Paul is saying in, in light of the, of the context here, is he's saying gospel work, as we're talking about it, gospel work is tiring. I mean, that's one of the things I love about the scriptures. The scriptures not, do, do not try to repackage things into something that they're not. Paul's real. Gospel work is tiring, but it's more than worthwhile. That's the promise. He says, because if you stick at it, if you don't grow weary in doing good, if you stick at it, you keep sowing for good things, you will reap a harvest. We're sowing constantly in life. That's what Paul's saying. We can either sow to the, to the flesh. That's a review from last week. If you remember, if you were here, kind of our, our fallen, sinful nature. We could, we could sow there. If I can perhaps overly simplify, we can sow for temporal things, for things that are temporary and of this life, but they're just that. They are temporary that are going to have a temporary harvest. And even if they're not the bad, bad kind, they're still temporary. They won't be lasting. Or we can sow, Paul says, for the Spirit, into the Spirit, and to overly simplify that, for things that are eternal. And Paul says, as you do that, yes, it's going to be tiring. Yes, you're going to need each other to say, keep at it. But it's going to be more than worthwhile because there will be a harvest to the extent you and I commit ourselves to this good work, we will reap a harvest. What kind of good work? What, what things of, 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 of eternity? Paul doesn't explicitly lay them out here, but it's easily inferred. It's precisely what we're talking about, helping people grow in the faith. And before that, helping people know about Jesus, help them, helping them into the faith, helping people to know and grow in Jesus. And as we commit to that, there, there will be an eternal harvest. And you know what's incredible is today we get to experience some of that harvest. Again, I'm not a, a farmer, but this is my understanding of like first fruits. It's like when the new season comes in, there's always the first fruits and you're like, you get to experience what you are anticipating now the whole harvest to be. It's like the first fruits to show you like how big the harvest is going to be, how incredible it's going to be. We get to experience some of that today. We're going we're gonna to celebrate three baptisms People celebrate alongside three people who have made faith decisions to follow Jesus and now want to, in obedience to him, make, make a public declaration of that faith. We get to experience that. And, you know, if you've been at Current during one of these baptisms, you know it's fun. It's a party. It's a celebration. But you know what this scripture is telling us? As incredible and joyful of an occasion celebrating baptism in a space like this today is it barely scratches the surface of what the eternal harvest will be. And that's what Christ is inviting you and me into as a gospel-centered community. So don't grow weary in doing 
good. In time, you will reap a harvest. And friends, we need to look for all the opportunities we get. I love that verse where it says, in verse 10, it says, as we have opportunity, let's do these things. Guys, we have an opportunity of opportunities this coming Sunday. I mean, Easter is next week. In our culture, for whatever reason, it's still a day people will often come to church when they otherwise wouldn't come to church. And guess what? It's about the main thing. We get to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, which hopefully we're talking about every Sunday, but we get to make it the main thing. You know what I'm saying? And we're going to have a party. We're going to have Bonchon and Rocco's Tacos. If you haven't had either of those things, that's worth it a lot. It's like, man, you can tell it's like before lunch. Sorry. A little happy there. We're going to have parties. We're going to make it fun. And we get to tell people about Jesus. We get to lift him up, who he is, what he's done for us, and eternal life in his name. And I'll just say, you know, we're still kind of in this weird, awkward post-pandemic phase. Like, I don't, are we back to normal yet? I don't even know. But I'll just say it this way. Before the pandemic, on an Easter Sunday, uh, this place would be just absolutely packed out, okay? We're kind of anticipating that. So we're going to have to push all the chairs up, which is to say, if you, if you are here and you call current home, or if you think you might call current home, or if you're just like, man, I want to be able to invest in these sorts of things, we could use your help. Uh, it's an all-hands-on-deck sort of day. There are formal ways to help serve. Cindy talked about those things. We could really use your help. We're going to have a lot of people come next week who don't know Jesus, who are getting to hear about Jesus. If that's not an opportunity for harvest, so to speak, I don't know what is. We'd love to have you help us do that formally, informally. Can you also go around looking to help welcome people? You know, if you see new folks, let's help smile them into the community. You know what I'm saying? Welcome them in, encourage them. Uh, invite them back uh, because there's so much opportunity to, to, to do these things. And, and I just want to say, please don't feel like, well, I'm, I haven't, I don't, I'm not like a small group leader. Like, no, it, it is an all hands on deck day. And we just want to encourage and, and, and ask all of you to help with that. Let's be praying heading into Easter. Postcards hit last week. Many invitations have been made. Hopefully many more invitations will be made even just this week. But let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we'll reap a harvest if we do not give up. Current family, it is, it is one of my life's greatest joys to be able to serve the Lord alongside you, to sow and to harvest, really more theologically accurate, to see him do that through us in spite of us and to get to see him move. For instance, three baptisms a few Sundays ago, three baptisms today, a few more coming. Like, to me, it's just like, wow, God is so good. And he allows us to be a part of that in gospel-centered community. And he's doing all of that with this harvest in a place called the Silicon Valley. I mean, I probably don't have to belabor this, but I'll travel to different parts of the country, church partners who are, say, in the south, and they'll, they'll hear that I'm, you know, part of a church in Silicon Valley. And say, oh, bless you. So glad you went to that heathen land. And some of them, I'll be real, are moved to tears when I say, yeah, but Jesus is bringing people into the faith. What? Yeah. It's a great joy to get to do this. We get to do this in gospel-centered community. And how Paul lays it out here as he ends this book for us that's all about the gospel, our greatest need, is how that's lived out in community. It's a gospel-centered community. Take sin, ser- sin seriously. 
and does so as it has a humble, sober understanding for its own need for grace as it rolls up its sleeves to do the sowing and harvesting that God allows them to be a part of. And we get to do that. We get to celebrate that even today. And so the question I'd have for you as we end this series is, will you join us? Let's pray. Father, you are so kind. All of this is because of you and for you. We, we thank you for the gospel. What Paul so eloquently uh, repeats over and over again into his original letter to the, to the churches in Galatians, that it is, it is through Christ alone, as we sung earlier, through his blood, his, his body crucified for the, for the forgiveness of sins, that if we, we, we can receive by faith. The gospel is you've done everything for us. And because of this, we can now not only receive a right standing with you, adopted into your family, but we can also grow into the likeness of Jesus by the the power of your spirit in us. Father, would you also help us as a church be there for one another in this? Please help us from the, the, the easy pitfalls that we so readily fall into of, of pride, of conceit, of comparison, of only truth and no grace, of only grace and no truth. Father, would you please... Help us to be a, a community that takes sin seriously, even as in one another's lives, even as we recognize our own need, desperate need for the, for the love of Jesus. And then, and then last but not least, would you help us not grow weary in doing good? You're good. And Father, with Easter in front of us, would you, would you go before us and, and many churches in this area and around the globe and do even more than we would hope or expect, helping people come into the faith, all for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.